You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. You are listening to Metamorphosis, a podcast where we interview various physicians across BC about their specialties with the aim of helping undifferentiated medical students navigate their careers. My name is Eric Jung, and I'll be your host today for this episode. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Jennifer Yao. She currently practices as a physiatrist here in Vancouver at the GF Strong Rehabilitation Center. Welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us virtually on Metamorphosis today. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. No problem. Absolute pleasure. Could you tell us a little about yourself? Sure. So uh, so I am a, a specialist in physical medicine and rehabilitation, also called physiatry. And so sometimes we refer to ourselves as physiatrists. Um, I uh, am currently working mostly at GF Strong Rehab Center, which is uh, pretty much the tertiary rehab center in, in the province of BC. And my clinical work, uh, which involves both inpatients and outpatients, is mostly in neural rehab. So having to do with uh, brain injury, uh, so acquired as well as strokes. Uh, I also see people with spinal cord injuries um, and other central peripheral nerve uh, injuries and disabilities. Uh, My clinical work here uh, does kind of rotate through different services, uh, but I also do a fair bit of administrative work, and that's for hospital administration uh, as well as uh, academically. So in terms of hospital, I am the uh, site medical site lead here at GF Strong, and uh, I also am the uh, division head for physical medicine and rehab uh, within uh, Vancouver Acute in Vancouver Coastal, Uh, health region, as well as the division head for physical medicine and rehab at UBC. And so I help to oversee essentially the some of the practice of uh, rehab uh, across the province. Uh, My other administrative uh, leadership role is at the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. And there I am currently the chair of the specialty committee on physical medicine and rehabilitation. And every specialty has such a committee at the Royal College. And basically the committee's job is to oversee the discipline of uh, PhysMed across Canada. We set educational standards, uh, expected competencies, uh, and uh, training curriculum. So, uh, I probably spend a good half of my time doing these administrative leadership type things and then the other half in uh, in clinical work. Such a diverse and active role you have. Uh, thank you for busy- joining us in, during such a busy time. Given your such an active, diverse role you have currently, what was life like prior to having all this? Could you tell us a bit about your background prior to medicine? Yeah, so I, I had a pretty normal, I think, uh, educational route. Um, I came to Canada when I was quite young from, from Taiwan, and I went to did all my schooling here in, in uh, actually, I started off in Richmond. Uh, I went through school to the end of high school in Richmond and then uh, to UBC for my undergrad in, in science. 
Um, I did a, a, a bachelor's degree in honors physiology before getting into medicine. But I was really more interested in people and in applying what I've learned. So that's what sort of pushed me more towards the, the clinical side of things, as opposed to the research or pursuing a very academic career. My dad wanted me to be a lawyer, <laughs> which, which didn't happen, obviously. Uh, yeah, uh, but that was, yeah, that was more for his purposes, I think. Uh, fine. Um, so I knew I was going to end up doing something in science. I also considered uh, psychology um, and possibly veterinary medicine, but I like animals too much, and I think I'll just end up taking all the sick animals home. <laughs> so, yes, so that's sort of a little bit of process of elimination and following your interests in terms of how I ended up in medicine. You know, I myself am also coming from an immigrant family, and we come to obviously a different country with a completely new culture set and languages. You know, how do you think those experiences that you've experienced when you grow up, how did that kind of help you in medicine, if you look back? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I, I came from Taiwan. Um, and my parents are relatively open and liberal. My, um, my dad's a businessman, but he was a teacher before that. Um, and I think part of that immigrant experience actually helped me a lot because I found that I felt I have more um, gender equality in, in Canada than I did uh, in Asia in terms of just even expectations that people had uh, of you uh, in terms of, you know, what is suitable for you to do or not. Um, so I felt like I was not as constrained, if you will. And, and I really could just sort of follow my interests and do, do what I feel I wanted to do. I think definitely, you know, Asian culture or compared to Western culture, at times can be a bit more rule-abiding, a bit more conforming in nature. And I think I experienced that myself when I came here as well to Canada, that it was more, there was more value of independence, more value of you should truly seek what you feel would fulfill your life. And in a way, that's kind of a blessing for us because it allows us to explore more and not feel so much of that cultural pressure looming over us. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I would agree. You've mentioned to me that you went to UBC for undergrad and honors physiology and got into medical school. Did you face any challenges while you were entering medical school or was it more of a straightforward process for you? Um, with challenges, well, obviously it's, um, it, you know, it's challenging to get into med school <laughs> as, as all of you have gone through. And um, I didn't really know very much about applying for medical school. Um, so I think I struggled a little bit in terms of knowing, you know, what do you put in your personal letter? What kind of references uh, might they be looking for? What do you say in your interviews? Uh, and at that time, the, the guidelines were not nearly as clear as they are now. The medical school interviews are usually only done uh, sort of one-to-one -one with someone from an admissions committee as opposed to 
these days you have little mini interviews of all sorts. So, so I think in that sense, it was hard for me to gauge uh, what would be useful to, to bring forward. But even with that in mind, um, and I also realized that, you know, of course, the odds of getting to med school are, you know, it's tough, right? There's a lot of competition. But I figured, you know, if you didn't give it a go, you're never going to get in. So, <laughs> so just give it a go. And I was uh, fortunate enough to, to get in to, to UBC. I did interview at a couple of other medical schools as well, uh, but I ended up settling at UBC. Do you think it was because you were just really happy being here, given how familiar it was? Or did you ever consider maybe going farther away from home for medical school? Or I was prepared to go further away, uh, obviously, for, for med school. And uh, I'm not sure if my family were as prepared. <laughs> they, of course, uh, would have, would prefer me to, to stay here in, in Vancouver. Um, I think definitely the it's it's easy to to just carry on here at UBC. I was familiar with it. Uh, it wouldn't be uh, a struggle to try to acclimatize to a whole new environment while undergoing uh, a fairly challenging curriculum uh, in med school. So, so yeah. So UBC is where I stayed. I think I guess that was a good decision and not signing up for more work because definitely I think there are some listeners who not only is dealing with the curriculum and the aspects of medicine, but also just life, new city, you know, completely mm-hmm. new environment, far away from social supports. And I think at times, you know, those are big factors that often we do not see. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you have to consider your personal factors and at the time when I was waiting for the decisions from my med school applications um, I was also just in started off uh, in a personal relationship and um, with the man that I am now married to (laughs) so at the time you know he was aware that if I got accepted somewhere else that I would have to move Uh, and he was actually prepared to kind of move with me if if need be um, but I think it would have been tough on, on him and his family as well. So there are all these considerations. Yeah, I think definitely myself included. At times, medical school is like a vice. It just grasps onto many aspects of your life, and there's not a lot of room or flexibility. So I think at times, a lot of people around us have to adapt, and mm-hmm. it's definitely a process we have to go through. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, then you've entered UBC Medicine back in, when was it? Oh, gosh. Now I have to count. Uh, (laughs) Sorry for making you count. (laughs) No worries. I think I entered, yeah, it must have been 1993 because I graduated in 97. Hmm. So So four years. How was that? How was your initial experience as a medical student here in UBC? Uh, overall, of course, it's a very positive experience. It was tough though, right? As you guys are going through it now, uh, it's not easy. Like you said, you have to be committed. And, and I say that to, to people now who ask me about, you know, going into medicine, either themselves or maybe their children. And I say, you know, it has to be something that you really do want to do. 
that's how you are going to persevere through the harder times and get through and not throw in the towel. So um, not knowing what to expect in medicine, I found that it was actually very well organized. Um, the Once you get in, the faculty are very supportive and the curriculum is, you know, at the time was the, the old uh, lecture style and beat it into your head kind of <laughs> style of learning. Yes. Uh, but, you know, the, the lecturers were all uh, really informative and helpful. And, and also just your class. I was probably, I think I was the last class to have the traditional 120 people per class. Yeah, it was 120 people a year for the longest time. Uh, before they they increased the number of of spots, so you got pretty tight with some of your classmates, and you all felt like you were kind of in this together. And we helped each other out. We had like they took turns taking notes and, you know, practice exams and all those kinds of things. Yeah. Right. Sharing the pain is definitely caring. So. <laughs> yes, definitely. Wow. Well, I guess then. You know, 120 students, you got in through all that competition. Did you have any idea when in that moment of what you possibly wanted to be within medicine? What were you initially interested in? I was pretty much a blank slate. I had no idea. Um, and like I said earlier, because I, I didn't really have much of a role model in medicine going in. And so I went in really not really almost fully understanding what this is all going to entail. Um, I was open to pretty much everything. Uh, and as you go through your rotations, you start to kind of look at more of a process of elimination, if you will, of things that you, you didn't like. Um, and so through that, I kind of eventually settled on more sort of internal medicine type um, areas of practice. Um, so I think I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking quite seriously about internal medicine and then eventually after that, potentially geriatrics or rheumatology. Um, physiatry was nowhere on the radar. I did not know physiatry existed and, and that was not unusual in the mid nineties. Uh, there wasn't a lot of physiatrists around. Uh, certainly nobody that was teaching on a regular basis uh, in the lectures. And I only got exposed to physiatry during an elective towards the end of third year. Uh, and that was when I, when I first sort of got to see what it was about. And even then, I wasn't 100% sold because it, it had a lot of MSK. And at the time, I was a bit intimidated by anatomy. So all of all this MSK, I'm just like, <laughs> oh my God, I, I have to remember all these tests and I don't know how to do this. Um, so I, I wasn't sure that, you know, that part of, of physiatry would would be a good fit for me. Uh, but, uh, you know, you get over it, you learn this stuff, and now it's totally fine. <laughs> it's funny how you mentioned back then, you know, physiatry was just this shadowy entity that no one knew about. And I still think that applies today. And in fact, even what you say, I think I echo the same sentiment with MSK and anatomy. It's like, wow, 
there's a lot going on. And this is scary, because if you think about it, there's nerves and there's vessels too. Oh my god. I do not want to approach this. I just want to know if it moves properly or not. <laughs> you, know. you keep yes. mentioning to me this process of elimination, and I guess you stumbled upon physiatry at the end of third year. You know, what internally were you going through that made you decipher, this is what I want, this is what I not want? What are some factors you were searching for? Yeah, I think looking back, I don't know if I was doing this overtly, but um, definitely one of the things I, I thought about is is trying to foresee myself doing something in that discipline. Um, not at, right after graduation, but say 10 years from now, 20 years from now. So for example, for a lot of the surgical disciplines, although it's really fun to get into the OR and do all this stuff, um, I kind of imagine, okay, this is exciting now, but by the time I'm 55 and I'm still getting called at three in the morning to come and do this appendectomy that I've done probably like a thousand times, it's probably not going to be that exciting anymore. <laughs> so I was trying to put it into that kind of a context to, to see if I will be able to enjoy this, obviously, you know, for the rest of your life. This is your, your life career. And the other thing that I think influenced my decisions, too, were just looking at the people who are in that discipline. So not only your preceptors, but the residents, um, you know, how they interact with each other, uh, what are they like, you know, what does it take to be successful in that discipline? Uh, and I know that, you know, sometimes we make fun of our, our surgeon colleagues, um, but, you know, you need to be very decisive to be a surgeon. You got to not hesitate when you got to do what you have to do. Um, and I think there are probably some different personality traits that attract people to different disciplines. Uh, and if you if you watch the people in those practices, you can kind of get a sense of um, of what they're like uh, and what makes them successful. Thank you for such insight. I think uh, what I'm definitely hearing is at times, you know, not only do you have to look at just the bread and butter of the specialty and apply it in a very real context, you know, we have to be able to imagine that we can do this on and on on a daily basis for a very extended period of time. And I think that really boils down to, do I enjoy the bread and butter of what it offers? Am I trying to squeeze an ideal out of it? And also, I agree, I think people really matter because in medicine, you do not work alone. In fact, working alone is incredibly hard, I think. And I give serious respect to those rural physicians out far where they're just handling most of the work on their own. Now. You've mentioned that you were a blank slate when you came into medicine. Do you think that for some medical students, it's not sometimes what they see from a specialty, but it's actually who they see? It's the stories they hear. Do you sometimes think that it's the mentors that actually give much more influence rather than the work or the bread and butter of the specialty? Yeah, I think definitely if you are fortunate enough to have a mentor while you're going through medical school, that will uh, undoubtedly influence you um, in terms of what you might want to look into, at least. Um, there, there was a mentorship 
program even when I was in undergrad, um, although the group was a bit big. Uh, and I had a lovely plastic surgeon who was who was our, our mentor. Um, it, uh, by then, though, I was already sort of probably thinking I was going to do something non-procedural. Um, I think that in terms of choosing a specialty and a discipline, I find a lot of students um, are feel pressure that they have to pick one thing. But to tell you the truth, I think if I got into, say, internal med or something else, I probably would be equally happy doing that. So I don't think we all only have one discipline in us. <laughs> we can probably do two or three different types of medicine and, and be successful and satisfied. Definitely. I think we often do fixate on one thing, hoping that this is the only path that will be viable for me or fulfilling for me. But I think I'm starting to realize too, listening to these interviews and just hearing what stories of physicians have gone through that nothing's permanent. It's a process. Sometimes there might be ways where you kind of divert away from what the norm might be. Yeah, I might change residencies. But at the end of the day, it's so important that you heed to what you're searching for. So in your case, it sounds like you were juggling internal medicine, and physiatry, as well as a bunch of other areas that you're interested in. How did you specifically end up choosing physical medicine and rehabilitation as the specialty of choice? Um, so I did actually apply to some different disciplines uh, in CARMS. So I applied to internal med, family, physiatry. Uh, and like I said, I, I think I probably would have been equally happy you know, in any one of those things. Um, and with physiatry, I think what I, I liked about it was how diverse it was. Um, because I was a bit of a blank slate and, you know, you might be able to tell by now that I, I'm not as decisive as I would like to be. And I take time thinking about things and I wobble back and forth. Um, and I figured, you know, things like family, general internal medicine or internal medicine, physiatry, it's broad enough that as you train, you can still hone in onto uh, more specific aspects. So you're not locked into, you know, your specialist of the left thumb kind of thing. Um, there is still time and opportunity for you to develop interests. That's a great point you're bringing up. Uh, with a bit of uncertainty, I think it's incredibly important that we keep doors open and remain broad. However, I think it is hard for us medical students now, given how you know there's more barriers, let's say, that are present. It's harder to keep the sense of broadness if you consider competitiveness and such. So, the system has changed a little bit for sure, and and I and I do hear that it's you know people have to be much more strategic now in their in their CARMS applications. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the general principles still still apply. Mm -hmm. Do you think that your undergrad program possibly had a bit of influence as to maybe why you were interested in physiatry, given that you did it like an honors in physiology? Uh, possibly. Um, I didn't really think of it that way at the time. But with physiology, I, I just was really interested in how things worked in 
in the body. Uh, and in some ways, uh, physiatry reflect that um, in terms of, you know, how does it work in the context of disability, be it injury or illness? Yeah, and you can kind of reason your way through some of this stuff. Uh, so if you understand basic physiology, you can kind of reason your way through what happens if there is a pathology. Obviously, you've gone into the physical medicine rehabilitation residency program. How was it? How was the training? If you can kind of highlight specifically, because I think a lot of listeners don't know what physiatrists cover. Could you kind of speak about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll start off sort of broad um, about physiatry residencies in general, and then I'll talk a bit more about sort of my own personal experience. Uh, so physiatry is a five-year training uh, program. You go straight into from CARMS right after uh, med school. And because it's a broad discipline, the training is very broad as well. So we definitely for the first year and a half to two years, you're rotating through uh, everything, medicine, different disciplines in medicine, rheumatology, neurology, different surgical specialties. So orthopedics, spinal surgery, neurosurgery, sometimes even vascular uh, or plastics, uh, because they all have relevance to the types of patients that we see. Uh, and then also some of the other uh, core disciplines like psychiatry and family and, and whatnot. Um, so that initial training is very diverse in the first couple of years. And then it starts to settle more into the rehab side of things. And that's when you spend more time in the rehab units or uh, in clinics or rehab centers like GF Strong, where you're really learning the bread and butter of the different parts of physiatry. And physiatry is quite modular, meaning that um, you know, our training program and the way we approach physiatry is divided into sort of different systems. So, so you get X number of, this is the old before competency by design uh, system, uh, where you would spend a certain amount of time training, for example, in brain injury, and then in pediatric rehab, and then in spinal cord, et cetera, et cetera. So you would get experiences across the board. The goal of the residency program is to graduate competent general physiatrists uh, that can, if they wanted to, go on to um, more specific parts of physiatry. So that's sort of the general program and how it's set up. The, my personal experience with uh, residency, well, first of all, even, even to this day, the residency programs in physiatry are not big. Uh, when I was going through uh, UBC physiatry, they only took one candidate a year. So our entire residency program had like five residents in it. <laughs> and maybe an extra from someone who transferred in from out of province or something. Uh, so it's a very small group. And again, so that made us very, very tight. Uh, it was a very fun and social experience. And uh, my residency is, I have to honestly say, it was very, uh, overall, was a very good, excellent uh, residency. Um, but being the only one in your ear, again, have not much uh, to compare with. And that was what I found the most challenging. Because even if you had somebody else in your ear, so now for the last few years, we've gone up to taking two people a year. 
which is still not very big. Body system uh, but never you, fails. So. That's right. But at least you have uh, someone that you can like study with. You can kind of you know compare notes with uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. So I did find that aspect of my personal training to be a little bit isolating. Um, but I we had great support, great relationships with our faculty and with my fellow residents, and, and that's what made it. Uh, really special. Yeah, I can imagine such a small group learning environment. You tend to develop more relations to people above you and to mentors and all that. So, but I think the con of that you just spoke was a bit of isolationism that you felt. Was there any other surprises that you kind of experienced, challenges you experienced as you entered and trained through physiatry? Um, the there weren't really huge challenges. I would say definitely back then, I mean, a little less so now, but when I was going through the first parts, the first year or two of, of uh, residency, which is mostly off service, um, you did feel a little bit adrift because you didn't do physiatry. You just went from rotation to rotation. <laughs> I remember one of the unit clerks, she used to tease me. I'd show up on the ward and she'll say, oh, so what are you this month? Are you a... <laughs> Are you a neurologist or are you an orthopedics person? So, uh, so you just felt like you were just floating through these different rotations. Um, but you do get pulled back for academic half day and things like that, it's just to you know. Uh, and eventually, of course, you learn all the the physiatry things. Um, but at the beginning, it did feel a little bit um, like what like what is physiatry? I've been in the program for a year and I still haven't done much of it. <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. But I think that will change a little bit with uh, competency by design. It's We've structured it so that so to address this kind of a problem, to make it so our, our uh, year one trainees will at least have a little chunk of, of physiatry. I mean, obviously, I'm hearing how diverse physiatry is in terms of just training, how much coverage it provides. And it's, I see the necessity of it, given that you're trying to now see the rehabilitation side of it. How did you navigate that and eventually find your niche, your subspecialty? Because from what I understand, you have a focus in spinal cord injuries, brain injuries. Mm -hmm. Could you kind of tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so for me, when I finished residency training, uh, well, the the biggest driver, of course, is you need to find a job. <laughs> it depends on what people are looking for and uh, what true. you're going to do. Can't deny that. Yeah, that's right. So um, for me, it was partially that uh, and the fact that um, I was looking at uh, potential jobs here in Vancouver and maybe in Alberta and other places. So again, I was pretty much an open slate. I was willing to look at pretty much all, all aspects of physiatry. Although through my residency training, I did find that I really enjoyed working in a hospital setting. Uh, I enjoyed in-hospital work, um, more so I think than, than regular clinic or office work. So I sort of was migrating towards uh, a job that would have a significant portion of hospital work. And when I first started, so I was hired back uh, 
into GF Strong, we, we often do that with some of our grads, even now is if they're available, we'll hire them back as locums for the summer. Well, we go away for holidays <laughs> uh, and just kind of get their yeah, mm. doing a few things. Uh, so I was I started off as a locum and then there was an opening in the spinal cord uh, rehab program. Uh, so I applied, interviewed, and then I actually did spinal cord injury rehab for about two years. Uh, and then after that, um, there uh, we had sort of a, a bit of a human resource crisis in our brain injury uh, unit with some of the physicians uh, not being available. Um, so I changed over to the brain injury side and has essentially been with that program ever since. And I think that just goes to show that when you're trained as a general physiatrist, you can actually change your focus uh, even after a few years of practice uh, without too much trouble. Uh, the principles of rehab are the same. Um, certainly the details are different and, and you will have to pick up on that. Uh, but that's one of the really great things about physiatry is you do still have flexibility uh, even after your training is done. Wow. That's incredibly unique. Is that still true to this day? Is that flexibility present where you can actually still switch out to a different focus and relatively have it have that transition easy? I think so, particularly in the early years after you uh, finish your residency training. Um, you, I have colleagues who ended up doing some different things. Eventually, they, they settled out and, and chose one area or another. Um, so there's that flexibility. Most of the time, people will choose things that are somewhat related. So for example, for me, it's more sort of neuro as opposed to MSK. Mm. Um, and for others, it might be something more MSK or even procedural like um, injections and uh, EMGs and things like that. So um, you can still follow your interests that way. Hmm. Yeah. Sounds like a great field. It's just you're able <laughs> to kind of really tailor the scope of practice to your interests, it seems, without relatively too much, you know, resistance. Yeah. Could you explain what your average day or week as a physiatrist looks like? You know, how much of your work entails inpatient versus outpatient and what are some of the bread and butter cases or the main conditions you work with? Okay. Uh, so my my clinical time, as I mentioned, I do a lot of them in, which is not as much fun. You sit in front of the computer half the day or go to meetings. Uh, but my clinical day uh, when I'm on inpatients, usually consists of going up to the ward first thing in the morning, just checking things through, make sure everybody's okay, um, putting out some of the fires, and then looking at, you know, are, are the patients on course in terms of their rehab progression or are there complications or things holding them back? Uh, if I anticipate problems down the road, which a lot of our patients face because once you have a disability, sometimes... Uh, they have limitations in terms of returning to work, returning to home, and those kind of things. Uh, and then tracking down my patients, finding them, because they're doing rehab, so they're not sitting around in their beds. <laughs> so, so I have to track them down in the center uh, to see how they are. Uh, I talk to therapists, social workers, um, in terms of updates uh, or issues that they may have identified or things I need to pass on. 
Um, so that takes up a good chunk of the day. Uh, for inpatients, that's most of the work. We sometimes will have uh, team meetings and rounds as well, usually about once a week. Uh, if I'm doing consult service, uh, I will usually then, you know, settle things in the office and then go over to, to VGH where most of our consults come from. Uh, we get notified when there's a consult that comes in and we will try to see them usually within a day or two. Um, so then I would be spending most of my time over at VGH doing that, doing consults and, and follow-ups at VGH. For outpatients, uh, I don't really do outpatients full-time, so they just get booked into some of the slots uh, through the week. And, mm. um, and I would see them um, sometimes after I've seen my inpatients already, I can still usually squeeze in a few outpatients as well. Could you tell us what's like the main conditions you usually face on like a daily basis? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so on the ABI program, uh, we deal mostly with stroke and acquired brain injuries. So those may be traumatic or non-traumatic like infections or um, uh, metabolic problems and those types of things. Uh, because GF has a relatively younger population when it comes to stroke, uh, we have about a 50-50 split between other acquired brain injuries and stroke. Um, so a very typical kind of course would be uh, someone in their maybe 50s who ends up with a, um, an MCA territory stroke and is now hemiplegic on one side, uh, maybe aphasic if it affected the left brain, uh, who is now not able to ambulate, not able to uh, use their one upper extremity, have significant cognitive deficits, cannot perform activities of daily living, like getting dressed and those types of things. Um, and then our job is to evaluate that and work with the team on how to move this person forward to at least to be a bit more independent with their self-care as starting point and basic mobility. And then proceeding from there on to more complex uh, instrumental activities like shopping and dealing with finances and all of those things. So that would be a very typical kind of case uh, that I would see. Wow, just hearing about this typical case, I'm trying to imagine here is a patient with numerous amounts of you know, functional problems. I can imagine you work with a very interdisciplinary team. You have a, probably like a speech-language pathologist, you have an occupational therapist, physiotherapist, social worker. How does a physiatrist fit all into that? Like, what specific role do they carry out? Do they oversee things, or do they actually also partake in some of the functional rehabilitation? If you can mm -hmm. kind of describe. Yeah, it's a, and it's a great question, because sometimes people think physiatrists do all this stuff like physios do, um, and, and we don't. Um, we work very collaborative with the team. Uh, one of my colleagues puts it very well. He says, our job and the team is to make sure that the patient is well enough medically to go to their therapies and be able to participate. So that's, that's my first priority. So if something came up, let's say they have suddenly have a lot of pain and they can't go to their physio today because they've got this big pain in their knee or whatever, then I got to go figure out what's going on there <laughs> and manage it. Um, and in terms of, yeah, we definitely work 
in a team environment uh, with multiple uh, other professionals. Uh, it's fun and you get to develop a real respect and understanding for what these other disciplines do. Uh, you get a good sense as to uh, who can contribute what uh, to the patient's function. Uh, and eventually that helps you direct the kind of services that this patient would need, right? So when they come in as an inpatient, they automatically get a team of diverse um, other professionals like PTOT, SLP and whatnot. But if you're seeing someone say in the community or as an outpatient where they don't actually have a team right now, our job is to then try and identify uh, what their needs are and where they, can they obtain it. So do they need to see a private physio or can they get this from a community uh, program? Um, can they do this even on their own in terms of an exercise program and whatnot? And outside of just even core PTOT, our job is to integrate people back into their lives as much as possible. So it, there are a lot of social factors that are involved, social determinants of health. Um, you know, it's not uncommon for us to have patients who come in with very little social supports uh, and then trying to find them a safe discharge destination that's sustainable can be quite complex. You have to have a good understanding about the resources that are available in your community and what people can access. Wow. I didn't ever imagine that. It sounds like physiatry is very, like, well-rounded not only are you dealing with the medical side of things but socially even psychologically and emotionally and you're working in a team but you're also overseeing the care and it sounds like to me that it's a very needs-based very personalized care because i'm assuming if i'm I mean, correct me if i'm wrong but each patient is very unique and you have to be able to see that and know how do i address and how do i utilize the proper resources to best provide the care that they need. Yeah, it is definitely um, quite tailored to the patient. Of course, there are generalities that would apply to different patient groups, mm -hmm. but when it comes down to the individual person, um, their rehab program uh, has to be specific to their context. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Now, this is a rather simple question, but as a practicing physiatrist currently, what do you love the most about your job? So I really love uh, seeing patients and interacting with the team and be able to come up with a plan and, and seeing them progress, right? Uh, sometimes people say, isn't it depressing to see all these really severely disabled people, you know, their lives are, you know, kind of like, you know, ruined or whatever term they want to use. And I say, actually, it's the opposite because by the time that people make it into rehab, they are ready to get better. And we get to see the resilience that most people have and how they can you know, reemerge from what initially looks and, and is a totally catastrophic uh, event in their life uh, and still be able to be uh, independent and useful members of the community. So that's definitely the best and most fun part of my job. It sounds like at times, I mean, I would be very inspired by my patients and oftentimes develop very personal like 
you know, connections with them, because I assume you work, you know, quite a longitudinal relationship with these patients from a very traumatic, life-changing experience all the way to eventually them going back home to their lives. Now, at times though, given the reality of medicine, there are probably moments where this doesn't occur. And at times where maybe patients are in such difficult stages that they aren't even ready for rehabilitation, maybe psychologically or physically. How has that experience been for you? How do you kind of manage those type of very difficult situations? Yeah, and they do definitely come up, uh, not infrequently. And rehab is one of those things where you cannot make somebody do rehab if they don't want to. So that's the first thing is you have to evaluate if the person has sufficient motivation and ability to follow through with these recommendations. Because if you can't, no matter how well intentioned you are, they're not going to do it. Um, and unfortunately for some of our patients who have poor insight into their conditions, uh, and we know they're not going to succeed very well. And it's like watching a slow train wreck, pretty much. So all you can do is try to mitigate some of that damage. Try to put in some supports around the person so that if and when they struggle, there is a place or someone that they can um, contact or, or help them. Try to make sure they're plugged into the right resources to do that. Uh, but, you know, even with the best of intentions, there are definitely cases where, where you know, we know that we've done what we can, um, but this person is probably not going to do very well. And I think that happens in any discipline in, in medicine. Um, as you learn in your practice and so on, you can't get too overly personally involved, of course, uh, with patients in their situation, you certainly empathize. Um, and to tell you the truth, that's kind of partially what drove me into doing more of this administrative and leadership stuff. Because I never really intended to do all of that when I finished residency. And what kind of pointed to this direction was I, I was seeing gaps. I was seeing areas that was frustrating because patients' needs were not being met. And I was like, well, how do we do this? We have to change the system. We have to communicate with people who have the ability and the power to do this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so that's what kind of pushed me into the admin side of things. Wow, thank you for telling us such an inspiring story that is seriously a very realistic way to approach some of these systemic issues that we often might feel very burnt out about. But it sounds like for you, you took that as a passion to be like, no, I'm going to get in and try to create some sort of change. So Dr. Yao then, speaking about about difficulties and some of these gaps, are there any aspects of your specialty that you kind of wish can you can see an improvement in currently? Uh, every time I get asked that question, my first thought is always, I wish more people knew what we did. <laughs> Which is why I'm doing this podcast. <laughs> uh, 
because I do think a lot of people don't really understand what physiatry is or, or what PMR is. Um, we get confused with all kinds of things. Um, but it is a very fun and worthwhile uh, discipline to, to have a career in. And I think if people really understood what physiatry uh, is and what we did, they would be way more people interested in this. Uh, I remember I met a, a dermatologist once when, at one of these meetings at the Royal College, and he came up to me and said, oh, you're a physiatrist. I said, yes. He said, I only knew about what you guys did a couple years ago when I pulled my back and had terrible back pain and wouldn't go away and went to see a physiatrist. He says, we need more of you. <laughs> and, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of that uh, in physiatry. So probably the most frustrating part is always trying to explain what it is that we do. <laughs> uh, but I think other aspects of physiatry um, that people might struggle with a bit here and there um, is that you do, you do need a team around you. So it's not, it is not a discipline where you could do in a very isolated location. Uh, we do outreach into those locations, uh, but if there's no team there, you have to get really creative in in trying to instruct your patients on what they can and can't do. So I find that sometimes a little bit frustrating, um, especially with patients who don't have great access to therapy and other resources, um, that you see that inequity uh, in the system. Mm, wow. I never thought of that too i mean you're right given that it seems like physiatry there's in a way you're dependent upon otpt all these para healthcare workers and a lot of those services aren't necessarily free and i guess you get to really see the impact of socioeconomic status or just difficulties that patients might often face when they can't afford some of these treatments yeah mm -hmm. definitely so and, and that's what I mean by, uh, you know, we need to really work with a huge team of people because you need all those people to address these complicated life issues. Mm, absolutely. So speaking a little bit more about your job, could you comment on how physiatry is in terms of just job market? You've mentioned that rural placements are kind of difficult to work with and you perform outreach and I can already assume that perhaps physiatry is more bound to bigger cities where there's tertiary care centers. How is that trending right now? And yeah. Um, well, there has been, you know, over the number of years, a gradual increase in the number of physiatrists in Canada. Uh, right now, I think there's something like just over 400 physiatrists in Canada with most of them being in Ontario. Um, most physiatrists, as I said, will need to practice in, a, in an urban or at least sort of a mid-sized uh, city environment. Um, job market-wise, it's definitely still very good. And it's starting to shift a little bit in that if you wanted to be very academic and work in an academic center and do a lot of research, that kind of stuff, those positions are probably um, not as easy to get. Uh, you will have to do some extra training or bring some extra um, asset to to your uh, school. The uh, in terms of just hanging up your shingle and doing actual general physiatry practice, you could you can do that 
in a lot of places and you will be very busy, very full within a matter of months. Um, so I don't worry about not having a job. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's a really good thing. Um, there are definitely needs in smaller communities as well. And when I say small, I'm not even talking that small. So for example, uh, I do some consultation physiatry in Richmond Hospital, but there's no, there's no physiatrist in Richmond. <laughs> and that's just a 20 minute drive from here. Wait, like the entire city or the hospital itself? The entire city. Oh. There's no practicing physiatrist who is based just in Richmond. Uh, and like, you don't have to go out very far to find that there aren't very many physiatrists um, in, in a lot of the suburbs uh, areas and, and whatnot. So it's, uh, it's an area that's, that's definitely of need. And we're always actually encouraging our trainees to explore some of those communities. Yeah, I mean, it's so baffling in a way because like rehabilitation is kind of ubiquitous. We often go through injuries that might impact our function. And I would imagine that physiatrists will be kind of spread out everywhere because they're kind of specialized in that. Why do you think there's this underutilization or even under recognition of your specialty? Why is it still shadowy? It's <laughs> shadowy. <laughs> Make it sound like some kind of a secret society or something. <laughs> uh, well, well, first of all, is I think until really the recent years, we've never really had much of a presence in, in medical schools. So most students who graduated have no idea what physiatry is. They've never even heard of it. Uh, even after when I first graduated from med school and told um, a doctor I was in physiatry, he didn't even realize it was a medical specialty. And so I think there's just an overall lack of understanding of what physiatry is and what what we do. Um, and then having said that, because there aren't very many of us, we actually cannot handle the volume of patients that we would have. We have to see every back pain, like it's not going to happen. So, so many practicing physiatrists have narrowed down into a particular area uh, or niche practice of some sort. And they've sort of stuck to that. Um, so it's, uh, you know, definitely a, um, a supply and demand kind of issue as well. Yeah, so there's not enough physiatrists and there's only so much that we can do <laughs> with these numbers. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I hope things kind of change a little bit because I'm even imagining now it's like, wow, I would like to see a physiatrist if I had back pain and such. But I think this interview will definitely let me or at least make me remember if I ever see a physiatrist in the future, it's like, I know what you do. Don't worry. You don't need to explain it to me. <laughs> yeah. But because of some of these bottlenecks, I think what, what's happened is, with especially with the very common musculoskeletal type things, mm -hmm. is, of course, primary care does an excellent job with, with handling that mm -hmm. uh, up front. Um, by the time we get to see them, they've already seen at least you know a couple different specialists neurologists, orthopedic surgeons, whatever it might be, uh, and their, their problems are persisting or getting more complicated. Hmm. And, and that's sometimes when we end up seeing them. Gotcha. I'd like to kind of cover a little bit of, you know, the whole work-life balance. 
regarding physiatry. It's many things that obviously our listeners will be curious about because, you know, medicine is kind of a lifestyle we're signing up for, not necessarily a career. How is your life like outside of medicine? And, you know, how is that all balancing in with your clinical duties as well as your administrative duties? Well, I have to have the caveat of I can probably do a little bit better balancing because I'm a bit of a workaholic and um, with all the admin stuff on top, I probably weigh at work way too much. Um, in general, physiatry has a very good uh, work-life balance. And uh, I have many colleagues who, um, well, first of all, our hours are pretty regular. So most of us work any, for probably on average like 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Like we're talking regular work hours here. Oh, that sounds great. Uh, yes, most of us have weekends off. Uh, on call, if you're in a, a call system, uh, is all home call. And there aren't a lot of real big emergencies per se. Uh, so from that perspective, the, the lifestyle is quite, is quite good. And um, yeah, so many of my colleagues are, are very active. They've got lots of recreational things that they do. You know, they go skiing up in Whistler on the weekends and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, I'm just not, ha I don't happen to be a terribly athletic person. <laughs> you know, but, avoiding uh, functional injuries. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I will have pristine cartilages when I die. Um, so for me, I, I do my, you know, I spend time with family. I, I don't have kids, but I have a fur baby, I have a dogs. And, and so I, you know, spend time with my husband and my dog, we go traveling. Um, and yeah, so I, I really can't complain. You have control over your hours. So when I first actually finished, uh, and I was just a regular physiatrist with no administrative duties, I actually chose to and can work four days a week. Yeah. And I did that for probably a good couple of years. Where do I sign up? <laughs> <laughs> so if you, if you don't have, you know, obviously if you have a big family and you have financial pressures and so on, then, then you're going to want to work more. Mm. Um, so there are a number of factors that go into how much you, you work. But in general, most physiatrists have a pretty good work-life balance. Um, in the latest uh, physician survey, actually, through the CMA, um, majority of physiatrists are, are very satisfied or quite satisfied with, with their work-life balance. Wow. High job satisfaction, controllable work hours. That sounds great. Yeah. Could you maybe comment about perhaps maybe the more financial side is your work fee ser like fee for service based or is it salary based mm -hmm. yeah so my predominant work uh, remuneration is from a service contract uh, with Vancouver Coastal Health mm -hmm. and that's for the hospital work that I do here at JF Strong when I do consultations uh, those are fee for service and so any, if I was to run a private office, obviously that would be fee-for-service. Uh, we do have some colleagues who have sessional payments, if that's still available. Um, so that's probably the main uh, sources is fee-for-service and sometimes um, some type of salaried or contract um, remuneration depending on your work context. Most of us, 
have a bit of a combination of these things. Um, the other source of uh, revenue for a lot of physiatrists is actual medical legal work. So that is where um, you're paid outside of the medical system, usually by uh, lawyers, law companies, uh, third-party insurance companies, whatever it is, to uh, assess patients who um, are in some, who have had an injury, who are trying to sue for damages, whatever it might be, mm. uh, and you're evaluating them uh, to to render an assessment on how you think they will function now right. and into the future. And uh, and you generate a great big report, and then they pay you directly. So that's a whole separate uh, area of practice uh, and a very different stream of income. Thank you for sharing that. That is actually quite interesting. I never knew that physiatrists would actually be kind of involved in the legal side of things, but that makes total sense. You know, to provide a functional assessment, it's kind of important. And wow. Now, you've mentioned that, you know, a good half of your work now involves administrators. And within that, there's a big chunk that you are involved in, particularly with medical education. Just a very simple question, but what do you think is the most important thing undifferentiated medical students should focus on learning like early in their careers? Um, I think when you're in your early years of medical school, I actually think you've got to learn to know yourself better and be honest with yourself about what you would enjoy doing or not doing. And the more self-aware you are, the higher the likelihood you're going to choose something that you will be able to stick with, uh, that you will be able to um, reach the goals that you've set for yourself. So I think that's sort of a general answer to a very complicated question. <laughs> I still think that's a great answer. I think it's really important. I'm really resonating with that too, that you don't lose yourself while you're going through medical training. I think it's so easy given how competitive it is. And at times we feel like imposter syndrome and we compare ourselves to our colleagues, but you know, it's so easy to do that. But when you sit down and think about it, we're all living very different lives and we have different sets of goals and they're no lesser or greater, but I think it's just hard to heed to that feel like it's important and it's going to be okay when maybe there's people who we might perceive as being higher and we want to achieve something that's similar. I think uh, it's just getting worse and worse given how things are becoming more competitive, really. Yeah, I think a lot of those sort of comparisons are just kind of false dichotomies that we set up for ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, in the end, it's what you're happy doing uh, that you feel... Uh, like you're contributing and you're you're doing uh, what you set out to do. Exactly. Now, you've obviously taught us in first and second year lectures, and you, when you were going through your training, you felt the whole very didactic, traditional approach to medical education and how medical, you know, medicine was taught. What's your opinion on the current state of medical education? It has changed, obviously. But is there anything that you want to see it improve in? You've told me about how you wanted to kind of change the system and address some of the gaps you saw. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the education system in med school has has changed quite a lot. Uh, of course, the most transformative change was when um, when UBC went to the problem-based learning um, after the traditional, or we used to call it the shame-based learning. <laughs> and, um, and again, what drove me sort of to to partic- participate in in medical education is I felt that there were gaps in the system that I was in. Hmm. Um, I'm actually a fairly introvert person by nature, and I found that certainly in in med school and in particularly in the earlier years and even through clerkship, it's very easy for me to just kind of be in the background. Hmm. Um, you can, you know, it's easy to get through a two week or even a four week rotation. You're in the background, you just do what you need to do. You can, you know, ask some questions like, and then you realize, oh my goodness, I I just went through a rotation and I'm not sure what I've learned. Yeah. (laughs) So I think the current system is a lot better that way in the sense that, um, there's definitely more, uh, observation and assessments of learners as they're coming through. The faculty is also now more aware and have had more training in terms of how to provide feedback, what kind of things to look for, um, you know, and how to direct students to resources and whatnot. So I think it has improved a lot in, in, uh, in those ways. Um, how will it get better? Gosh, um, there's so many changes happening right now. Uh, I think it sort of remains to be seen. Um, medical education has learned that it needs to reevaluate itself every so often <laughs> to make sure that we're doing what we want to do. Yearly and vitals, right? <laughs> yearly vitals. Um, but, you know, you guys are such bright people to begin with. Like, all medical students are, you know, sort of that one percentile range of, of students who are very self-directed and, and smart and capable. Um, sometimes we say, you know, well, despite what we do to you guys in the curriculum, <laughs> I think you will all, um, most of you will all still succeed. So I'm kind of excited to see how this uh, whole competency by design thing works out in the next few years. Mm-hmm. I guess I'll be a guinea pig going through that process then. (laughs) We'll see. Last question. So what type of individual would be best suited for physiatry? Like what are you particularly looking for if you are seeing a candidate? Right. For example, let me just give an example of the kind of things that we pay attention to when we are interviewing for CARMS, reviewing files, that kind of stuff is a we're looking for someone who who is actually interested in doing what they want what they've applied to so they're interested in physiatry or um that that they have a genuine sort of love for the discipline we because we are very team-based you have to have very good communication skills uh, and you need to have good emotional intelligence uh, to be able to communicate effectively, not only with your team members, but with patients and their families, because they're going through some pretty hard times when when they're coming through rehab. Uh, aside from that, um, we're just looking for people who are 
um, collegial and can work well with others, uh, team players. Uh, and I would say, you know, if you ever go to one of these uh, rehab conferences, uh, certainly the Canadian one, uh, we spend a lot of time doing actually fun social things because <laughs> we actually <laughs> like each other. <laughs> like I actually, you know, our call it like even now we'll go out, you know, well, not so much in COVID right now, but we regularly will, you know, go have lunch and, or even a dinner here and there. Uh, and, you know, we socialize very well with each other. Our residents are first name basis with us. Um, so we are, are pretty easygoing that way. Mm. And um, that just tends to be the kind of people that uh, physiatrists mm. uh, are. Of course, there are definitely, you know, a range of different personalities and whatnot as with anywhere. Uh, but in general, I think that's the kind of people that would do very well in physiatry. Hmm. Gotta be likable. Simple as that. <laughs> I think that's our episode today. Thank you so much, Dr. Jennifer Yao, for virtually joining us here on Metamorphosis. For listeners, you can find more episodes like this on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other apps where podcasts are listed. On behalf of the entire Metamorphosis team, I'm Eric Jung, and thank you for joining us. Stay safe and happy social distancing, everybody. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 